This is Monday Morning QB, May 24th, 2021. I'm Askia Muhammad. Today on the show, the ceasefire holds after another bloody shooting war in Gaza. Workers once seen as expendable, now seen as essential, are still struggling for dignity. As the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd by a Minneapolis cop approaches, police forces wrestle with the responsibility of cops to intervene to stop police bad conduct. And is detention the only way to deal with migrant children at the border? Plus, this is our spring membership drive. Our fundraising goal is $500. Please call to make your contribution now. 1-800-222-9739. Go online to WPFWFM.org or cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Stay tuned. The latest fragile ceasefire between Israel and Hamas militants in the Gaza Strip continues to hold after 11 days of hostilities ended Friday. The fighting left more than 200 Palestinians, 64 of them children, and a dozen Israelis dead. Both the Biden administration and Egypt are taking credit for brokering the truce. But this latest in the periodic series of hostilities between the two sides that spans decades may benefit Israel's apartheid government, according to Phyllis Bennis, a senior fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. Yes, the article that I wrote about four days ago, I guess, in uh, Common Dreams, uh, looked at the three ways in which Israel benefits from this war. And the first one was that it keeps Netanyahu out of jail. He is facing a number of corruption charges. They're very serious. The trial has begun. And as long as he is, in, in, at the moment, he's the acting prime minister. He's not even the real prime minister because the elections have been so divided. Uh, but he is the acting prime minister. And in that position, he can't be arrested. The minute he is no longer prime minister, he sets the, he, he faces the possibility of being hauled off to prison. So this is very personal for Netanyahu. He sees this as the way to stay out of jail. There are other reasons that Israel benefits as well, one of which is their long-time strategic approach, what they call, and this is their word, mowing the grass in Gaza, which essentially says that every several years, every four or five years, it's necessary to go to war against Gaza to teach Hamas and teach the people of Gaza a lesson, to teach them who's boss and to remind them that they are not in control of their own lives. And that's the kind of language they use. They have to mow the grass again. This time it's been seven years. So they're a little overdue to mow the grass, I suppose, by their standards. And then the third way that Israel benefits is that the Israeli arms industry, which is a huge component of Israel's very high GDP, gets enormous increases in orders and in credibility for their products when they can say that their products, these new weapons, have been battle-tested and proven to work on the battlefield in a real war. Is it possible to get more people to recognize that this is the behavior of a colonial settler state? I think we are seeing that. We're seeing mainstream organizations like Human Rights Watch, uh, B'Tselem, the leading Israeli human rights organization, both of which have recently issued long comprehensive reports showing why they have come to the conclusion that Israel is guilty of the crime of apartheid. 
That's huge. Not because it's a new idea. This is something Palestinians have been saying, South Africans have been saying, the United Nations officials of various sorts have been saying for two decades. But when organizations like that start saying it, when members of Congress start using the word apartheid, as at least two members of Congress now have, that's a different era. So that is changing. But this is unprecedented in U.S. history for members of Congress to directly challenge uh, a specific uh, military sale to Israel. This isn't a broad principle. We should never uh, sell arms to Israel, something that many of us have fought for for a long time. Uh, But it's the first time that even a specific sale was being directly challenged in this way. So we're seeing a huge shift in what happens in Congress, the relationship between Congress and the president on this issue. And it's all happening very fast. We don't know exactly where it's going to go. The Palestinian territory map continues to shrink. And I remember attending conferences where Palestinians complained that the Israeli aim was for Ersatz Israel, for Judea and Samaria to be all under their control. Uh, is, the, is there, uh, you mentioned mowing the grass, is this part of a plan to eventually uh, just get rid of the Palestinian population altogether? Well, I think from the beginning, the Zionist movement has had the goal of making real what Golda Meir claimed existed, which never did exist, that they were trying to make it, which is the notion of a land without a people for a people without a land. Certainly in the later stages of state construction of the Zionist movement, which of course began in the 1890s, but the the period just around the time of and after the Holocaust in Europe, when the necessity of building a a Jewish state to deal with the the crisis facing Jewish refugees was very acute, the, the situation has been very different. Certainly in the period after the Holocaust, the Jewish refugees who had survived the Holocaust, who were in displaced person camps, who were uh, who had been liberated from the death camps uh, in Auschwitz and elsewhere, they were indeed a people without a land. Their their homes, their property had been stolen by the Nazis. So there would have been every uh, there was every reason to to take global responsibility for that huge crisis. The problem was the solution they they chose that the governments of the United States and Great Britain, where the vast majority of Jewish refugees wanted to go, they had family in Brooklyn, they had family in London. That's where they wanted to go, not to, uh, you know, to create this new state in the desert in the Middle East. But that was the only thing offered to them. And because of a combination of anti-Semitism and anti-communism in the United States, Jewish refugees in huge numbers were denied entry. And the only option they had was to go to Palestine. The way that happened was under British protection and then later under the United Nations protection. So this whole notion of uh, the, the, the population divide, this was always based on the idea that we want the maximum amount of land for the minimum number of people. And when the United Nations had first divided historic Palestine, in the partition resolution, resolution 181 of, of 1947, they divided it into two parts, one of which 55% for a Jewish state at a time when Jews comprised only 30% of the population. The other part was only 45%, and that was for the Palestinian state, where Palestinians made up 70% 
of the population. So it was a completely unjust way of carrying out an unjust goal of dividing this country that did not belong to Britain, did not belong to the United Nations. So, you know, this is a long-standing issue. The goal in Jerusalem where these attacks have been underway and there's a huge campaign of what the Israelis call Judaization is about imposing demographics, ensuring through force that Israel will always have a big majority. So the goal in Jerusalem is that there should never be less than 70% Jewish population. Right now there's only 60%. So there's this big campaign underway of house demolitions, evictions. One of the things that sparked the, the current crisis was the Israeli escalation of these threatened evictions in the neighborhood of occupied East Jerusalem. So all of this has been going on for a long time, aimed at getting control of the land. The reality is right now, as we've talked about before, if you look at all of the territory between the river and the sea, which would include what's recognized as Israel proper, the West Bank, occupied East Jerusalem, and the occupied Gaza Strip, all together, there is one authority that has any power, and that is Israel. The reason that we use the term apartheid is because within that one piece of territory, which includes several different jurisdictions, there are different legal systems. There's different legal systems within Israel. There's different legal systems between what the rights that are guaranteed to all Israeli citizens, including Palestinian citizens, and the rights of nationals, nationality rights. Because for Israeli law, nationality is not Israeli. There's no such thing as an Israeli nationality. On ID cards, in the spot that says nationality, the choices are Jewish, Christian, or Muslim. That's the nationality. And because of this notion of Israel as a, quote, Jewish state, the privileging of Jews within that citizenship is written into law. So this is the part inside Israel. And in terms of the occupied territories, you have this two completely different legal systems that operate one for Israeli settlers, which is the Israeli uh, um, normal justice system, and Palestinians that are that are held accountable to Israel's military system. So again, it's completely different systems, different legal systems. That's the definition of apartheid. The question becomes, well, what's the, what's the struggle then? And for more and more Palestinians, it's being defined less as how many states are we going to have? You know, one state, two state, red state, blue state. Who gets to choose? I certainly don't have a say in that. I'm a Jewish girl from California. Why should I have any right to say how many states there should be? But I do have the right, and I would say the obligation, to make sure that my government is only supporting the actions of a government that supports human rights and equality for all. So the struggle now is about rights, not about states, however many states there are. You need equality and equal rights for all within all those states, one, two, three, or many, and between those states, one, two, three, or many. It's about equality. People in this country do understand and cherish the idea of equality for all. So it shouldn't be hard for, for Joe Biden to change the policies of this country, to support the principle of equality for all in a real way. And at some point, somebody's got to tell him. The world has changed. The voters have changed. The parties have changed. And you're just holding back based on this notion that doesn't exist anymore. It's no longer political suicide to criticize Israel. 
we're on the verge of being at a point where it's going to be political suicide not to criticize Israel. Get with the program, Joe. Phyllis Bennis, thank you for helping us understand. Thanks, Eskia. Phyllis Bennis is a senior fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. This song, Asfur Talmen Eshebak, is by Marcel Khalifa. It means a sparrow came into the window. It was recorded at yesterday's Palestinian Solidarity Rally in downtown D.C. by Monday Morning QB's Amara Evering. has prompted a reimagining of work in America, including a shift in which work is considered necessary. Workers typically treated as expendable were instead lauded as essential once the pandemic struck. But worker policy has yet to catch up with the refashioning of identity, and some in D.C. are pushing to close the gap. For more, we go to reporter Chris Banger Drowns. Low-wage workers have always been vulnerable to crisis, with little savings to cover emergency expenses. The pandemic recession made that reality clear to the world, and with little to no sick leave or other protections, many workers had to choose between earning a paycheck and staying safe at home. But essential workers aren't content with this reality. A group of labor unions and community organizations gathered outside D.C.'s Wilson Building last Wednesday to demand Mayor Muriel Bowser include an essential workers' bill of rights in her impending budget proposal. The proposed bill would provide at least 80 hours of sick leave to most essential workers, a hazard pay program of $3 an hour, bereavement leave, PPE standards, and an easier path to winning workers' compensation over COVID infections. Herb Harris, with the Brotherhood of Locomotive Engineers and Trainmen, explains why creating these essential worker protections is necessary now, even with the pandemic beginning to taper off. Because it's not a question of if, it's only a matter of when. We will be faced with either another natural disaster or potentially man-made disaster or act of terrorism being in the metropolitan Washington region. 
The bill stipulates that all protections will lock in for DC essential workers if or when a state of emergency is declared. This is important to create comprehensive coverage for all types of essential workers. Herb Harris explains from his perspective as a rail and transportation worker. We are often designated as essential by federal decree and law uh, in, the, in, in the immediate aftermath of natural disasters, emergencies, and things of that nature. But we have a lot of industries, especially in this region and in the District of Columbia, that don't have those designations under federal uh, guidelines and laws. So we want to make certain that there is no gap uh, in the protections and resources available to all the sectors and employees in the District of Columbia and the metropolitan area. The need for sick leave during a pandemic is obvious, especially given the long-term complications some have experienced following coronavirus infections. Kunta Bedney of the Eastern Atlantic Council of Carpenters tells his story. After my sickness, I contracted a something called COVID toe where my feet swelled up and I had pain in my feet where I couldn't even walk. So um, when these type of things happen and we know we need to put measures in place so that if another emergency happened or another pandemic happened, we have something in place to help people get over the sickness or get over the hurdles that's in front of us. And that's why I'm down here and support of the DC Worker Bill. Thank you. The bill's 80 hours of sick leave would help workers like Kunta Bedney recover from infection while remaining formally connected to their jobs. That sick leave would typically apply only for workplaces with more than 50 employees, but the DC bill specifically extends protections to domestic workers regardless of employer size. This is important because while domestic work is widespread, Many domestic laborers work alone or in small groups for individuals or families, not large firms. Many members of our DC chapter contracted COVID-19, probably from their clients, and had to miss many weeks of work. These workers cannot afford not to be paid. They need more sick time to be able to stay home without worrying about how to feed their family or how to pay the rent. That's Antonia Pena, an organizer with the D.C. chapter of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, as translated by another NDWA organizer, Alana Eichner. In addition to sick leave, hazard pay would be extended to all domestic workers. To recognize the increased risk and expenses that these workers experienced during the pandemic, we must grant them hazard pay so in the future, they do not continue to risk their lives to protect us and still cannot support their families. The pandemic showed how essential we are in caring for loved ones and families in D.C. Now it's time for Mayor Bowser to honor that by enacting a Bill of Rights for Essential Workers in D.C. Long live essential workers in D.C. Y que vivan los trabajadores esenciales de D.C. Gracias. Like most provisions of this bill, sick leave and hazard pay protections are meaningful both in strictly fiscal terms and in terms of fairness and justice. Sick leave and hazard pay would not only allow workers to safely care for themselves and family, 
but would also demonstrate to essential workers and to the world that their risks and sacrifices have not gone unnoticed. Tiana Jones, a Safeway worker and United Food and Commercial Workers member, explains. Essential workers worldwide are working in the midst of a pandemic and being exposed on a daily basis to strangers, unaware of their health issues, and we are putting our life constantly at risk. Firefighters receive hazardous pay, so why not us? We're, we all play a part as essential workers, and we all should be compensated for that. Working on the front line, I've seen coworkers get sick, and in spite of all that, I keep serving customers without receiving pay. Putting my life in danger and my family is a risk itself. I don't want to take a life. We deserve to be compensated for the risk we have taken. So I'm calling on my mayor browser to put away money for hazardous pay in our budget. Organizers say this D.C. Essential Workers Bill of Rights takes inspiration in part from a bill passed through the Maryland General Assembly to create emergency temporary standards during the pandemic. But hazard pay was eliminated from the Maryland bill, and paid sick leave was made contingent upon further federal funding. Governor Larry Hogan has not said whether he would sign that watered-down legislation, so Maryland essential workers are left in limbo. But D.C. essential workers have a chance to win clear protections during emergencies. David Sidbury, a D.C. public works employee and member of AFSCME Local 2091, called on D.C. government to make the same commitment to essential workers that those workers have made to this city. We live with the burden of being exposed to the virus from our co-workers. We live with the burden of exposing our children and our loved ones to the virus. Despite our concerns, we have provided and continue to provide exceptional service. We have displayed our appreciation. We have displayed our gratitude. We have displayed our dedication. It's time for our employers to reciprocate. Without hospital and healthcare workers, without public works, without grocery stores and supermarkets, without social services, without television, newspaper, and radio services, without gas stations, without banks and credit unions, without transportation services, without construction services, without shelters and hotels, and without our first responders, the quality of life for district residents would drastically decrease. DC Jobs with Justice hosted last week's press conference. You can learn more about them and the Essential Workers Bill of Rights by visiting them on Twitter at DCJWJ. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Chris Bangert-Drowns. Tomorrow marks the one-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd by white Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin, who forced his knee on the black man's neck for more than nine minutes. Three other Minneapolis police officers present did nothing to stop Chauvin, even as they heard Floyd gasp, I can't breathe, more than 20 times. Since George Floyd's murder, 
numerous police departments across the country have added or updated existing duty-to-intervene policies, requiring officers to step in if another officer uses inappropriate force. But will they work? Sue Goodwin reports. In general, duty-to-intervene policies require police officers to intervene and stop colleagues from using excessive force. Many cities across the country already had policies in place when George Floyd was murdered. Peter Hannock is a professor of criminology and sociology at California State Polytechnic University. And as he explains, that included Minneapolis. In fact, it has a fairly strongly worded duty to intervene. And it had created this duty to intervene along with a number of other major police reforms after 2016, after a number of high-profile uses of force that had occurred in Minneapolis and the surrounding area. So all of the officers in Minneapolis had been trained on this duty to intervene. All of the officers present at George Floyd's death had fairly recently been trained on this duty to intervene. And yet, as the videotape clearly shows, none of them acted to prevent the killing of George Floyd, which begs the question, why? Back in July of 2020, Hannock and two colleagues, Professors Anjali Verma of the University of California, Santa Cruz, and Jeffrey Ward of Washington University in St. Louis, published a research paper in The Jurist that seeks to answer that question. After looking at policies in many of the nation's biggest police departments, they conclude that having a duty-to-intervene policy alone is unlikely to compel officers to intervene when excessive force is being used, in part because of the language used to define that obligation. When you try to get at a definition of what actually counts as force or what actually counts as excessive force, there's a surprising variety of definitions that people offer. And in fact, if you look at these duty to intervene policies, you see a surprising variety in how excessive force, that idea, is expressed. Sometimes it's expressed as excessive force. Sometimes it's expressed as improper force. Sometimes it's expressed as force that is no longer required or force that is more than required. All of them are trying to get at this idea that there might be a certain amount of force that is permissible, a certain amount of force that we recognize that police officers regularly use as part of their job, and we don't question their ability to use force to carry out their duties. But there's some point at which that force is no longer acceptable. What that is, no one can really offer a clear definition of. So in that context, police officers have to make a judgment call to decide if the use of force checks all the boxes that would demand their intervention. And that hardly happens in a vacuum. These are split-second decisions influenced by a number of competing values and ideas that can encourage police officers, when they witness excessive force, to decide that the right thing to do is to do nothing. And one of those is the sense to protect one's own. And that's just true for everybody. And so when we look at a special case like police officers who exist within a very strongly defined subculture with its own set of norms and values, its own set of behaviors, its own culture, when we look there, we see one of the, the 
overriding norms, one of the overriding musts in police culture is loyalty. And it's the loyalty to your fellow officers because you know that you have to depend upon your fellow officers for everything. You depend upon your fellow officers for protection. You depend on your fellow officers for, for safety. And here, Peter Hanek makes reference to the so-called blue wall of silence that calls on police to protect one another against charges of brutality and criminality, Another factor that can influence the police officer's decision to intervene is fear of retaliation. Consider the story of Cariel Horn, a black police officer in Buffalo, New York, who in 2006 tried to stop an officer from using a chokehold on a handcuffed suspect. Carol Horn is one of the most famous examples of this, of the, of the limits of, of a generalized duty to intervene. She, she did intervene. She had her pension denied. She was fired. She's ostracized. She was accused of disloyalty. She had her career taken from her. Horn didn't take that sitting down. She fought long and hard to have her dismissal overturned. And just last month, after 13 years and numerous court challenges, a state court judge ruled on a lawsuit in her favor, vacating an earlier ruling that affirmed her firing and granting her the back pay and benefits she had previously been denied. Now, beyond the proverbial blue wall of silence and the fear of retaliation for breaking through it, there is still another significant factor that has to be addressed when considering why police failed to intervene, and that is the issue of race and how it influences police decisions about when to use force and how much. So one of the things that is worth considering when it comes to a lot of these vague definitions about duty to intervene against an officer using excessive force is what counts as excessive force? When is force excessive? And force is excessive when you, know, you say that it's no longer necessary, or force is excessive when the person who has force used against them is not posing a, a threat, is not posing a danger to anybody. Well, one of the major ways that race intersects with this is how people are racialized and through that racialization process, how people are criminalized or made dangerous through the use of stereotypes. People have these ideas specifically about black men as being dangerous. But it's not just a racialized sense of perceived threat that may influence decisions on the ground about whether excessive force is justified. Race can also have a role in assessing the amount of suffering a person is experiencing during acts of police brutality. One of the things that has come out in the research on race and force is that not just police officers, but people generally have these ideas about how much pain people can tolerate based upon race. When they estimate how much pain people can tolerate, people always estimate that, that black men specifically can tolerate this extraordinary amount of pain, certainly more pain than, than, a, than a white person could tolerate or, or an Asian person could tolerate. So, bringing these two ideas together, how might they have influenced the murder of George Floyd by Derek Chauvin as three other officers on duty just watched? And it's entirely possible that part of that was influenced by this idea that George Floyd was in possession of this kind of superhuman pain tolerance or this superhuman ability such that this overwhelming amount of force needed to be used that a similarly situated white person would not have had used against them. The critical question then is how can this through line from attitudes to actions that too often turns into excessive force and a failure to intervene get turned around? 
As more and more police departments adopt duty-to-intervene policies, some are putting their hope in training programs designed to help police officers overcome their inhibitions to intervene. Peter Hanick welcomes those developments, but he's skeptical that they alone will make a difference in changing behavior. And that's why I want to emphasize that it's not a bad thing to have a use of force policy. I think that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to have a duty to intervene. I think that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing to offer training. I think that's a good thing. But when those are all that's done, then that can give the impression that there's nothing more to be done. And what's more to be done, says Peter Hanick, is a cultural shift in the way policing itself is viewed and what kinds of attitudes are tolerated among officers discussed sometimes as the shift from a warrior mindset to a guardian mindset, of shifting police officers from viewing the public as threats and viewing the public as enemies that you can't trust and the only person you can trust is your fellow officer, to now you are a guardian and your obligation is to protect the public and that obligation extends to everybody. And what would encourage this kind of shift in police culture to actually happen? It happens from the top with leadership who's really truly committed to it. It happens through day-to-day practices, day-to-day behaviors, where we recognize that these kinds of uses of force are not tolerated. These kinds of violations of people's rights are not tolerated. Not waiting for the most extreme case of the use of force or the use of deadly force, but instead looking at the more day-to-day cases, not tolerating racist or offensive jokes, not tolerating demeaning language, right? It's those things that create that distance. It's those small death by a thousand cuts kinds of indignities uh, that create that social distance, that create this cultural norm where police officers owe more to their fellows than to the public. Peter Hanick is professor of criminology and sociology at California State Polytechnic University. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Sue Goodwin. Despite reforms in our immigration system, migrant children are still being held in temporary detainment facilities by the thousands, leaving many asking themselves, how do we address this issue without relying on detention and detainment? Amara Evering reports. Around 20,000 migrant children are now being held in U.S. custody. Most of these children are staying in what the Biden administration is calling emergency shelters, things like converted convention centers or a repurposed oil field or even a military base, though advocates have found evidence of overcrowding, neglect, lice outbreaks, filth, and the unlawful detainment of children for longer than 40 days. The Biden administration has defended the use of these shelters, saying that they're in a tight situation They claim that they're just trying to work with the system that they were given. But many have still been left asking, isn't there another way of dealing with these children other than mass detainment? Well, if this is something that's been on your mind, you're joined by 34 other members of Congress, led by Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, that have called for, quote, an end to the carceral approach to immigration. 
I spoke to Dr. Michael Coyle, professor at California State University, Chico, and editor of the soon-to-be-released book, Contesting Carceral Logic, about this issue and what this carceral approach is exactly. The carceral approach is such a large part of how we think and operate in our everyday life that for most of us, it's actually difficult to separate it from how we think about everything. Anything in terms of our relationships, child rearing, our friends, our families, how to respond to harm, all of this is wrapped into a mentality that's about using control. It's about the idea that somehow if you threaten people or if you use punishment, that's a very effective way of dealing with problems or constitutes a helpful foundation to build life out of. When an institution or system is carceral, it means that it deals with issues and addresses problems by using threats of punishment, namely through prisons, jails, detention, violence, and or neglect. This, arguably, is how our immigration system is structured, from everything to policy to policing, even as the Biden administration claims to use more, quote, humane approaches the approach is still fundamentally carceral. When it comes to immigration, our idea that the way to respond to the question of immigration is to set up a bunch of rules and then try to control how those rules are actually practiced and how to respond to people who don't follow those rules is, of course, done through carceral logic. Many of the children in U.S. custody right now are not only asylum seekers, but also have a family member or sponsor waiting for them in the U.S. Yet many of these children are stuck in these emergency facilities, often for unnecessarily long periods of time in unsuitable conditions. The reality is that this issue is not being adequately handled, no matter how many convention centers they turn into overcrowded holding facilities for kids. We're using the same logic that is as problematic as it has ever been. So the idea of trying to think about immigration from a different lens is not only a good idea, it's perhaps becoming common sense. So what's this different lens? How do we completely reimagine our immigration system to not be so dependent on detention? Well, for Dr. Coyle, He believes that we should address people's needs before we filter them into existing systems of criminalization, punishment, and prisons. Not addressing people's needs is inherently violent. So it becomes very important for us to change the lens, if you will, to start to think about, well, how can we build relationships? How can we solve social problems without violence, without trying to control? people, which is very, very commonly a failure, such as our criminalizing system is. So basically, we should address the needs of these children, like prioritizing their unification with a family member or a sponsor before we simply throw them into a system of detainment. We should address their needs, whether it be in the form of dealing with psychological trauma or potential health issues. To some, that idea may seem hard to grasp or even feel a little unnerving. Well, 
Dr. Coy believes that those feelings actually align with how many of us have been taught to think. You know, there's literally not a single area in our life that I can think of anyway that is not defined by this kind of thinking. You know, it's interesting. You, if you try to think of, of an issue where everybody, no matter where they fall on the political spectrum in general, right, center, left, and anywhere in between those categories agree upon, you can't really find very much. But there is one thing that you can most definitely find. Everybody thinks in terms of the paradigm of crime and criminals and prisons and punishment and threats and control. These ways of thinking are such a deep part of how our own minds work that we really don't even understand that that's, that's how we're operating. This is called carceral logic. Carceral logic refers to how our ways of thinking, the ways we relate to others, and view things like justice and accountability has been shaped by the ideas and practices of imprisonment, punishment, and criminalization. This mindset exists, even if we have not personally experienced the prison system ourselves. Dr. Coy believes that this mindset is even present in our most intimate relationships. Take child rearing, for example. How do parents think about, how do schools think about interacting with children? Well, it's always the same thing. Lay out the rules, law, think laws, lay out their application. And this is only getting worse and worse in history, right? Think about how the legal system, police, et cetera, have become so much more the part of childhood now. How parents themselves think about raising their children. We have various language that we use. We say we call it laying down the rules and punishments. How you punish your child if the child doesn't follow the rule. Many of us have this mindset. We make rules with threats of punishment in order to try and control someone's actions. And if these rules are broken, we punish that person. On a basic level, that's how carceral logic operates in our everyday lives. But on the institutional level, rules and punishment take a different form. And when you add in things like, well, racism, things start to get a little complicated. When it comes to trying to solve a social problem, address a social problem, especially if you're using a carceral setting, punishment rules, threats, always what you're witnessing is how racial and ethnic minorities are paying the very, very big cost. What we know from research is that any 50-year-old adult will easily owe 10 years in prison if they're held fully accountable to the harms that they have done. That then introduces a very interesting question. If everybody eventually is going to owe the system 10 years, what does that say about who goes and who does not go to prison? Clearly, our criminalized system is only accurately described as a targeting system. It decides who it goes after and who it does not go after. And this directly influences things like policing. I had a student uh, last semester who, when I was talking about this in class, she said, well, I did a ride along, you know, riding along with a police officer, something they do for public relations. And I, as soon as I stepped into the, the car, the police officer said to me, what would you like to go bust for? In other words, that police officer, like any police officer will tell you, 
knows exactly how much harm, how much crime is going on, and at any moment can go bust for any particular thing. So how do we address things like, quote, crime, if it's happening all the time and all around us? Does that mean that we throw up our hands up in the air and you say, well, everybody's doing it, so therefore it makes no sense whatsoever to worry ourselves about violence or about theft or about corruption. Nope, we can't do anything. So, oh, well, throw your hands up in the air. We're not going to do anything. Obviously, that's not a solution. So... How do we address things like violence or corruption? In our interpersonal relationships, how do we stop others from hurting us, disrespecting us, or taking advantage of us? How do you control these situations without threatening some type of punishment? Well, Dr. Coyle believes that there's another option, setting boundaries and negotiating needs rather than threatening punishment to control others. Boundaries in human relationships are incredibly important and a good thing. But it's one thing to have boundaries and then to talk about how do we respond to people when they break those boundaries, like children. That is a very different way to think about human relationships than to think about it in terms of, I'm going to try and control people through the threat of punishment and the threat of consequence. So by considering the different needs of others, Maybe we can more adequately address social issues and problems. And what people who study this problem will tell you is that the biggest impact that you can possibly make to lower the amount of harms is things like actually address people's needs. Do you want to, do you want to address drug addiction or do you want to put more people in prison for drugs where they're even more easily and more cheaply available? And by considering other ways of addressing social problems that aren't carceral, things like police abolition and even immigration and customs enforcement abolition will seem less like an abstract ideology and more like a practice. When we talk about abolition, what we're talking about is stopping the way of thinking, stopping the way of practicing that pretends as if we can write enough laws as if we can hire enough police, as if we can build enough prisons to actually deal with life, to respond to harm, to build successful relationships, schools. Abolition is not some crazy disattached idea from reality. We have constructed literally every edge of our life under the carceral paradigm deconstructing that, abolishing that, which is absolutely needs to be abolished, and abolishing that is something that we need to do very intentionally and very carefully. I personally am an abolitionist. I don't think anybody should be in a cage. Dr. Michael Coyle, political science and criminal justice professor at the California State University, Chico. Look out for his book, Contesting Carceral Logic which will be available on July 30th of this year. For Monday Morning QB, I'm Amara Evering. To close the program, we return to where we began, Palestine. This is Huda Asfour, a DC-based musician and activist, singing a protest song inspired by a recent Palestinian workers' strike against Israeli brutality. The song is titled, From the River to the sea. 
And that's our show for today. Monday Morning QB is produced by Chris Banger Drowns, Amara Evering, and Sue Goodwin. I'm Askia Muhammad. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash WPFWMMQB. Please stay safe. Keep your social distance. You may still want to keep wearing a mask for now. And you can still contribute to Monday Morning QB. Call now, 1-800-222-9739. Go online to wpfwfm.org or cash app us at dollar sign WPFW. Thank you for listening, and thanks for contributing to WPFW Washington and WBAI New York. Bye. Bye. Bye.